Hi guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and you're listening to Specify, the Building Materials Innovation Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to help the entrepreneurs and the innovators who are making a positive difference in the building materials, coatings, and construction industry. Each episode, we'll tap leaders and experts from inside and outside the industry to provide the mental tools, skills, and insights to make an impact. Today's guest is Adam Malowski, who is the Managing Director of Elements. Adam is a 25-year veteran of the performance chemicals, polymers, and materials industries. He's held numerous leadership positions in a variety of startup opportunities, both private and within corporate America. Adam, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Yeah, I know I, I did a little bit of an intro for you, but I know you've, you're involved in a ton of stuff. Can you fill us in? <laughs> Can I fill you in? I'm a creative kind of guy. Um, I've always enjoyed love just making stuff. So I, I like to cook. I like to garden. I like carpentry. I, I even dabbled in politics for a while. I like creating new things. I like doing things that are different. And so that's really been my, my whole life. As far as innovation goes, while, while yeah, I'm a polymer guy, my training a chemical engineer much of the things I've spent time on really traverse many different industries. So I, I helped develop and, and led the creation of a business uh, for fresh cut produce treatments. So like when you cut an apple and it doesn't turn brown with a, with a natural organic treatment, I, I actually was one of the ones who spearheaded all that in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a pretty strange experience. I've worked on shoes, airplanes, cars, drug release, candy. I like the candy part. I worked in ice cream. I've worked on clothing. I even got to do a few Victoria's Secret projects. That was fun and interesting. <laughs> my, my wife didn't really approve of that, but you know, <laughs> someone's got to make the panties. So <laughs> anyway, so I really, what, what I, what I did learn, I think if there's a hallmark of my background, I always like to remind people, my wife reminds me every day I'm an idiot. So I keeps <laughs> my, uh, keeps me grounded. Right. <laughs> And she's able to do that. She's a three times three different cancer survivor and she runs her own company. So she's pretty, she's pretty well grounded and makes sure that I know that I'm not a, I'm not the king of anything, but, but at the same time, being grounded is is important. And and so what I've learned by working in all those industries is, is kind of seeing what common threads there were to, to really effectively doing platform innovation, particularly in manufacturing, tangible products, things you can hold, see, adjust, screw, glue, break, whatever it may be. And, and so that's really what I've, I've loved about my background is, is being able to take the same basic principles of, of innovating and creating new businesses and seeing how they apply over so many different places. So that's, that's kind of me. Absolutely. Now, what is this uh, common thread or fundamentals you're referring to? There's a few threads and too many people that they can go take a class you think they can go take a course or my favorite one is an accredited innovation person. Oh, yeah. I got a certificate that says I'm Thomas Edison. I, I don't think that really works very well. <laughs> they give people titles, right? That says I'm an innovation this or an innovation that. What it really comes down to is first, it's a lot of innateness to being an innovator. And that may vary from place to place, but there's some common threads. And I think the single most important common thread I've seen there's a few of them. You know, you, you actually, you know, we were talking before about you know, what are maybe the three things that build your success or create your success. I think for an innovator, there's, there's really three things. I think one of them is basically being omnipresent and in touch with the world you live in persistently, constantly. 
innovation is not a periodic event. And, and it doesn't stop when you walk out the door. It doesn't stop when you go home. It doesn't stop when you go to sleep. It's who you are. And you either are, are an innovator or you're not, right? Mm-hmm. And so these programs might uncover that. But it goes further than that. If someone is innovating, they're in tune with their entire ecosystem. And as they go through their career and move from place to place, they're always looking at all aspects of the ecosystem. When people try to drill me down to what's one simple action they can take, I tell them, look, don't talk to your customers. Don't look at your customers alone. That's a kind of a silly thing to do because they're only going to tell you everything from their viewpoint. And it's pretty myopic. I said, what you really need to do is talk to all the people who deal with your customers, including their customers and their customers, their suppliers, those who regulate them, those who are influenced by them. Because in the end, if you can bring your customer a customer, you're pretty much going to get that deal done. Hmm. If you can't do that, you're not going to get the deal done. A second aspect, the second basic principle is surround yourself with the people through your entire life who know the things that you don't know you don't know. (laughs) Can't be the king of everything. Can't be an ego-driven, egocentric person. I only success, all my success has only been because I've been blessed enough to have the people around me and made the effort to put the people around me, to build the relationships with the people around me who knew far more than I did, far, far more than I will ever know. But where when I needed to pull together those, that as two experts, 10 experts, 20 people, get those nuanced pieces of information, understand the context and pull it all together. It was only then that I found great success, that, that I saw that I could see something transformative, abstract it, and make it happen. And so there's that, that second principle, right? And, and really the third thing I think is just very important is putting facts aside to a certain extent and sticking more with abstraction and context. When you have too many facts in front of you, it creates paradigms. And you assume those paradigms and you create boundaries that you may not even realize exist. You may even think you're abstracting, but you're really not because there's things holding you back. It's far better to say when you're in the business of moving something from point A to point B, that that's all I'm in the business of doing is getting something from point A and having it appear at point B, right? It could be that at the first, that, that one simple definition means I'm not necessarily trying to go there in an airplane, a car. It could be some Star Trek transporter beam, right? some weird particle physics thing, time travel, who knows? I, I haven't put a limit on it, right? But then there's other subtleties like, well, does it have to go from point A to point B or can I take 10 different components and bring them from 20 different places and assemble them at point B? You kind of start to see my drift. Mm-hmm. And, and, and too many people, they do things like the job to be done. I love Clayton Christensen, I get it. But there's a point where sometimes things are ready to make money and be the next big, big trend and can I write a new book, right? Mm-hmm. The bottom line is, is what do people want? What's their state of being? Where do they want to go? And so context, understanding the world they live in and how they behave and what they want, that's probably more important than, than anything else. And so those three things, they really, in the end, all revolve around context in the end, right? And so those three principles, that's what guides my life going forward and most of the colleagues. And it's most of what we try to tell people to spend their time on. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned it a little bit about an innovator being an innovator, right? And they're born. Now, what if, what if someone has sort of that in them and it's underdeveloped? Let's say they have the potential. How do they pull that out or how do they discover that for themselves? 
if they wonder if they have it. Most people start to realize they have it. But, but I'll be honest, I didn't know that I was very good of an innovator in the beginning. My father was an outstanding innovator, studied by Harvard and all that kind of cool stuff. But I wasn't sure if, if I was going to do that. I was told when I was young to move into every function I could possibly be in within the industries I was thinking about pursuing as a young man. And so I worked in the lab. I worked in tech service. I worked in the pilot plant. I worked in the plant. I loaded rail cars. I did financial analysis. I did accounting. I did sales management. I did everything you could possibly imagine. I did communications. I helped set up trade shows. I helped set up advertising. And it was through those things that then coupled with working in multiple different industries that I started to realize that that I had this knack for pulling the people around me together who knew what I didn't know, right? And then being able to abstract solutions. You know, I say, well, why can't we do this? Or why can't we do that? And how come no one ever tried this? And suddenly realized that, that hey, I was innovating. I, what I did realize is the innovating part, though, was a little different. It wasn't just thinking of an idea or something. Lots of people have all kinds of ideas. It's not the ideas. It goes back to before it's the context, the abstraction, and then figuring out what would an idea need to look like. And unless you have empathy across multiple functions at multiple points in the ecosystem, it's really hard for you to develop that, to uncover that you have it. So the best thing to do is to put yourself into all those situations as early in your career as possible to worry more about the experience than the salary, right? And as long as you're not married, have a significant other or whatever you want to say, and you can live on, on ramen noodles or macaroni and cheese or whatever noodle thing you can live on, unless you have diabetes, the bottom line is move all over the place, work abroad, put yourself into a million situations, start to get a feel if you can adapt to all those different situations. And don't worry, people will tell you if you're good at it or not. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The, the market will tell you. Now. <laughs> yeah. So, well, they will, but, but if I have staff that I think can be innovators, yeah. that's exactly what I do with them. Yeah. That's exactly what I want to do is expose them to all those myriad experiences so that they have a chance to figure it out for themselves. Nice. Now you said figure it out. At what point did you figure it out? What was that last piece that kind of dropped in or, or that moment you knew you had it and uh, you had that new level of confidence? There were two times it, it, it kind of came in two fits. And they were both when I was totally out of my element. In one area, I was in the food industry and the president of a small division at RPM. Hey, can you start a fresh cut produce business? And can you look at some of these texts we have and uh, make apples not turn brown so we can sell them to Stop and Shop, Kroger, Entenmann's, Burger King, McDonald's, all these folks. And I didn't have a clue about any of this. Yeah, I'm a gardener and I went to culinary school early in my life, but but you know what? I didn't know anything about this. So of course I said, yes, I can do that. And then when, when I, when I actually did figure it out and pulled all the people around me where I didn't know much of that biochemistry, where I had to rely on others, where I didn't know much about the baking industry. I didn't know much about retail at the time, maybe 30, 29 years old. Didn't even know, like I said, the chemistry, but actually pulled it together and delivered award-winning products that transformed several different aspects of industries you know, from the baking industry to uh, certain aspects of fresh cut produce, you know, things delivered to restaurants, you know, things that could be sold as snacks and fast food restaurants and grocers. I started to realize, wow, I, I don't need to have all the technical acumen. I mean, it was important to have a deep technical background in something to know if someone was BSing me or not. But I suddenly realized that it was asking the right questions and understanding context that was critical. 
And it was then the next job after that, that I was given among other things, but I ended up being in charge of ended up having to be development of a brand new class of power tool, an induction heating power tool that did not exist. A handheld power tool that could glue things together, bond things together, heat things that would be ultimately be the size of a cell phone for $45 overseas versus in the U.S. And all of the devices at the time cost $5,000, right? Weighed three, four, 500 pounds. And again, applying all those same principles, basically delivered again an R&D 100 award product, a brand new class of power tool that indeed could be made for $45 or less overseas that could transform the building, among other things, the building and construction industry. And that was something I did with Senko Products, you know, the, the nail gun guys who at the time were always paranoid about anything that might eliminate nails. Mm. And so once I did that, I realized I can do anything. I can deliver powerful innovation anywhere. All I had to do is have the right team of people always around me throughout my career to be able to ask all the right questions, to pose the impossible questions, to be able to break things down into the components, the elements of what would be an abstracted solution, what I like to call the what must be trues, and see how many of them are already true, how many of them are true somewhere else. My industry just hasn't hasn't found it yet, right? Yeah. And then things are are pure act of God discoveries, you know? I got to have an in with God. And that means it's probably not going to happen too quick. (laughs) That was when I realized I could do amazing things. and, And everything just vaulted forward at a very accelerated pace after that. Yeah, no, that's great. Now, you mentioned it earlier, and I got to ask, because I, I think you opened it up, and my listeners are probably wondering what, what this Victoria's Secret project you were working on. <laughs> it was actually kind of cool. I can't say a ton about it, but what I can say is, yeah. when, you, when, when people were making clothing, they wanted to be able to use, it was actually for a supplier to them, but it was directly in concert with, with, with them. And I can't give a lot of details, but it came down to this, and it's almost 20 years ago now. People want to be able to make clothing with ever new materials, right? That are fashionable and have all these interesting properties or looks or whatever it may be. The problem in that particular case when abstract was, well, why, why can't you use all these things? And they go, well, you know, because we have to use heat. We don't want to sew it because that'll ruin the material and give it a look we don't want. We don't want to, you know, so we don't want to sew it. And everything else we do involves heat. And if it doesn't involve heat. It's too long time to process. It's bulky. Heat something that's incredibly smooth. And so what we ended up doing was listing our, our what must be true, shall you say. And, and then when we said, well, we think these are the areas where we'll find a solution, I still remember the company going, that's not possible. You can't do that. And we are like, well, why do you say that? Because no one's done it before. I said, yeah, but that's what it means when you innovate is no one's done it before. <laughs> if you do it and someone did it before, it's called copying. <laughs> Might even be patent infringement for all we know. And so what we were able to do is to develop the basic concept of a system where we could basically assemble clothing that was super smooth, multiple layers, materials, whatever it could be. But this technology, which was for this company, not, not Victoria's Secret or Limited Brands or anyone in particular, but this concept allows you to do things essentially ambiently at very high speed with no heat, no sewing, right? And also without any using any liquid adhesives or other types of materials, Right. And, and that, that today, they never actually really pursued it well. We've always kind of kept that in our back pocket, so you say. But the basic concept was there. And, and the reason no one had looked at it, and this is why it's so important to be in lots of places, multiple disciplines, is it really brought to bear four or five different disciplines simultaneously. 
Mm-hmm. And so we were able to do that. We were able to essentially assemble garments, but not only assemble them, but in the case of things like the panties, we were able to basically make them that the panties had instantaneous full strength. Instant. Mm-hmm. So as they were made, they could be handled, packaged, put in a box, right? In this case, people just put them on and started doing whatever it was they were doing, or we could put them in a, in a stretch machine or whatever it was, and they were strong instantly. And, and it was clear that that could change the entire, not just garment industry, but carry it to the next perspective. Anything that was a woven or non-woven web, right? It would just so happen that that was the vehicle for it. Interesting. That makes some sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and all of it involved the abstraction and coming up with, which back then we didn't realize, the abstraction then along with the what must be trues and had anyone done this before, breaking it up into the different elements, and then seeing where people had done it before. And in a few cases, they hadn't fully done it before, but when we pulled the four or five different disparate concepts together, it was clear it could be done. There was no reason that it could not be done. Interesting. Very interesting. Now, you talk a lot about being connected to the world around you. Now, what sort of trends or things that you are really sort of you're curious in around chemicals, polymers, and also the building materials industries. Anything that stands out on, on things that you're curious in or sort of kind of looking at these days? Yeah, absolutely. So, so first, we, we kind of stay away from just chemicals and polymers. I, 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 that was what I got trained in, and I'm, I'm really good at it. That's great. Yeah. It's really not what our focus is now. It's really tangible products, what they're made out of, how they're used, and how they're made. So building and construction is no different than automotive or anyone else in that people want to make things faster. They want to make things with less skilled labor or no labor, right? They want to have an, as infinite an array of design choices as they can, depending on who their customer is. So if they want to lower costs dramatically, they want to be able to do that at will. If they also want to be able to use exotic materials, they can use them at will, right? In building and construction with the big labor shortages we see, Innovation really begins in the decorative and then can overall slowly move into other areas. But there we focus most of the time on resilience and eliminating labor, Hmm. right? Or being able to do more with less labor per unit time, right? And so we've developed some award-winning products. So so one of the ones at Cirrus that we developed was called Nexabond. And Nexabond allowed you to glue basically any two species of wood together you wanted with anywhere from one to two minutes of, of working time, three to five minutes working time, or up to 20 to 30 minutes working time. And when it was done curing after those times, you basically had full strength. You could saw it, hammer it, cut it, machine it. So you can imagine versus white glue or radio frequency stuff or epoxy or urethanes or baking things, the ability to assemble things and actually have it be wood failure. Mm-hmm. I don't have to nail things together. I can pre-finish them, right? Yeah, yeah. I can have much more rapid throughput, right? Absolutely. All those things have tremendous value. So we were able to, the example we used, which is to kind of illuminate the, the cabinets and things like that, we had a gentleman came to a IWF, or no, AWFS. We won the best product award there a few years ago. Actually, maybe five, six years ago now. And what we were able to do is basically build wooden bowls made out of about like 50 little wood pieces, <laughs> all different species of wood. We're able to put the rings together and then assemble the rings on top of each other in less than five minutes, maybe 10, and then machine it in another 10 or 15 minutes. Wow. These same bowls normally took two to four weeks to make. 
and here we were making them on the fly. So that was the weirdest Beatles moment I ever saw because at AWFS, it's, it's not gaggles of pretty girls or something, right? At AWFS, it's lots of guys with beards <laughs> who maybe they diet, but not necessarily. <laughs> All going, go, go, go. I mean, that was just strange, okay? That was just strange. But what we were able to do is illustrate that if you wanted to assemble something with wood that was pre-finished, right, in a house, you could do it. And that was pretty mind-boggling, right? And that was pretty pretty exciting. And so so it's things like that for us are, are major. It eliminates a huge amount of capital equipment. You know, the guy's name who did the bulls was David Hine. He used to be a chief editor at Fine Woodworking. Mm-hmm. Or not chief editor, a senior editor at Fine Woodworking. He was chief editor at Consumer Reports for many years. And, and when he first visited us, he didn't believe that we had what we had. So he came with a suitcase of clamps. He had us cut the parts for three tables that he picked out the part, the design, told us how to have them cut the whole nine yards. And when we went in the room to go watch the skeptical guy with the tables, we went in after 45 minutes. He said it would take three days to build the tables. He was already done and standing on one of them. I went, mother of God, you've just revolutionized the entire furniture industry, even how it can be delivered, even how it can be put together. You've changed the building. Oh my God. And he was like, and he's 70 years old or so, right? He had never seen anything like that before in his life. And that, that's the kind of thing that we're trying to work on in the building industry. Nice. You know, we've done quite a, some cool things we're working on in soundproofing and finishing. We're doing some cool work now on heating floors and heating walls. Talking to some of the bigger companies in that space where basically can heat at a point on the surface uh, as opposed to heating it deep below. You know what I'm saying? So they're, they're allowed to be incorporated directly into the product. That's actually very, very exciting. We've been able to reduce the cost potentially for things like that down to pennies a square foot as opposed to five to ten dollars a square foot. So all kinds of neat things. What they really involve is is allowing you to deliver more at a low cost or a cost everyone thought was not even possible and being able to do things much more rapidly with far less labor or less skilled labor or both or potentially no labor at all. And so building instruction is, hey, how can I build twice the houses with the same labor, right? How can I build four times the houses? It's when you ask those questions and everyone says, well, you can't do that. You go, why? And then when they list the whys, you say, well, they're doing that here. They're doing that here. They're doing that here. They're doing that here. What do we have to do to get it to work in your industry? Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of debates. That's what we work with clients on. Because one of the things that, that most clients don't like is getting trained on something and hoping it works, right? Mm-hmm. By and large, because we deal with principles as opposed to tools and methods, which which most of the time just, just don't get it. Everyone's different. Everyone doesn't want to use those tools, right? When we deal with principles, what we're able to do is actually work on a real problem. So whether we walk into a client and give them the first day for free, right? Or we walk in and we're doing a six-month or a one-year program. The bottom line is what we're spending our time doing is solving a real problem versus doing training, right? When I say solve a problem, it's not pretend. The idea is when we're done, there's a product out the door. When we're done, there's a cost eliminated, right? Mm-hmm. When we're done, you've made money. And to us, if, we, if you've made money, right, then it's worth talking to folks like us, right? We're not the only ones out there. But, but the question is, is you should be demanding as someone who's looking for innovation help, you should be expecting to make money on the deal. If you're not making money on the deal and someone's just training you, teaching you things, giving you little, you know, little pamphlets, if they're giving you something to you know, hang up in your office or, or a certificate. Everyone, like I said in the beginning, they love getting those certificates. All right, that's not making your company money, right? 
And so that's how we try to work with people to learn innovation. You brought that up earlier in the conversation also. How do you learn? How do you discover it? When you go through these kind of persistent programs with people, what happens is it becomes very clear, very, very quickly, who the innovator or innovation management folks are, right? Not being an innovator isn't a bad thing. Not bad at all. Everyone has the things they're good at. And I told you what my wife thinks of me. I'm not the one who you want to put in charge of a factory, okay? I'm not the one who you want to put in quality control for the data, so I'm just going to eat them all. But what you want to do is, is just realize that innovation is just a piece of how a company operates, right? Yeah. Ironically, the two places we go to the most of the time for general innovation opportunities is we talk to the CFO and the finance folks. Yeah. And we talk to insurance companies. Where are all your claims? <laughs> right? Interesting. Insurance companies have no problem telling me, oh my God, these things fall apart, or oh my God, this kills people, right? It's awesome. It works very well. <laughs> the CFO, we go, what's your biggest cost? Can we get rid of that? And, and, and then he goes like, well, the cost of the product. I go, well, we can't get rid of that. But maybe we can get rid of a chunk of it, right? Yeah. And, and then we'll go through the line items. And those are things we learned at Loctite through folks like my dad. But that's the exact strategy he used all those years ago. was basically doing financial analysis on prospective customers. And what Loctite would do is when they did that, in the end, they first saw, was there an opportunity for them? But for context, I'm being very general here. If there were three other ways they could save far more money than trying out some new Loctite product, then Loctite didn't spend their time there, right? Because they weren't going to get any attention. But if they realized they could improve profitability by 10, 20, 50, 100%, they knew that if they could be in the top three of mind of the executive, the CEO, the the sponsor, if you will, that they were going to win and win big. And if the customer won big, then Loctite would win big. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, we, we partner, we develop innovations in part with companies all the time. And one of the frustrations is always dealing with those innovation committees in the larger <laughs> companies. Tell me, how do you solve that, Adam? <laughs> all right. Well, I'm, I'm going to be really honest with you. I, I, I don't give a damn about a goddamn innovation committee. We blow through them. <laughs> the best way to blow through them, though, is it. You bring them a custom. So, so I can't say who they are because it would be inappropriate. But we, in serious, the largest, biggest, the biggest investor for us was one of the big three automakers. They realized that because we could cure these polymers at room temperature, we could paint a car standing still in five minutes with no solvent, no nothing, blah, blah, blah. This would change the whole way they made cars. So let's just call them chemical company A. Chemical company A looked like they wanted to be dragged in, kicking and screaming to do this stupid new coating right? Because it would change everything. It'd be a lot of work. And so I never forget, like having the customer, the person who was using the paint, the chief technology officer of this particular company essentially called up the, the big chemical company, saw a peer over on his side, on their side, right? Yeah. And said, don't you worry. If you guys don't want to do this, you don't want to be stressed out. We'll find someone else who will. <laughs> and you know what? 10 minutes later, I get this phone call. You know, we weren't interested before, but apparently now we're very interested. <laughs> and that's what I mean by bringing a customer. Because think about it. I don't mean to be so harsh in the innovation committee, but think about it. Yeah. They're put under a situation with a lot of information that they, don't, they know they don't know it. And they're being asked to basically approve an investment or a time in something yeah. that they don't know if it's going to work. If you bring them the customer, now they're willing. You have to de-risk it completely. You may not have all the technology done, but it sure better not be white space in innovation for a product to a company. You better have proved that this thing is a matter of time and people 
money to get it done, but the basic concept works. And then the customer you have, that better deliver if it works. Absolute transformative growth. And that customer better be willing to get on the phone and say what I just said to that chemical company A. Yeah. Don't worry. If you guys don't want to do it, we'll find someone who will. Can I just get your name so I can tell the CEO that you all said no? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Flip it around, I guess. People are always worried about losing their job, but if your customers wanting to do something and you're cheering them away. That- no, but, but that's the key. And it, and it gets a little more interesting than that. So at Loctite, they called them Loctite Charlies from way back in the early 70s. And you don't sell the companies. You sell the people. You sell to a committee. You're dealing with all those people. But somewhere there's the point of contact, right? Yeah. If you don't mitigate and eliminate as much risk as you can, there's always something else they can do that's then going to be less risky. Why are they going to spend any time? But then you have to realize you're not there to make their company successful. You're there to make them successful. You're going to get them a promotion. You're going to get them the next new job. You're there to have, have a big impact on their company. And you're going to make sure you do it with as little to no risk as you possibly can. If you're starting to pitch things that have a lot of risk, you shouldn't be doing that. That's probably a hint you're not an innovator, by the way. Okay. You should have all this stuff lined up, ready to go. That's the key. Being an innovator is about thinking differently. It's not about jumping off cliffs. It's not about being a lemming and, and hoping for the best, you know, jumping out of, out of a parachute that maybe your mother-in-law packed or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, I, I wish it was a different son-in-law or daughter-in-law or something. What, what you want to do is make sure that the thing that's missing and a major innovation is time, people, money. And the other thing that kind of goes with that is the ability to execute. So in the case of a lot of things that, that I and my colleagues have done, we spend much more time once we realize we've got something on operations. Yeah. Spend much more time on executions to team, the people, the supply chain, the ecosystem. You know, a good story we have is with uh, some materials we had at Bioformance became serious. We got six chemicals approved, new to the world chemicals, basically. But there was a lot of clinical research that had been done on them, one way or another. All right, PMNs normally take 90 days, but in reality, or they're supposed to take 90 days, they normally take 270, 360, or God knows how long, years. We got ours for six different materials in 70 days. Mm-hmm. And people are like, oh, you bribed them? He said, no. I said, you know, I, I'm not necessarily like any chemical guy. I wouldn't say I'm fond of the EPA, right? But, but at the same time, they have a job to do and they want to do it well, right? And so we involved them from the moment we had our idea and asked them, what do we need to be concerned with? Where do most people make mistakes? We essentially made it a team effort because you realize someone at the EPA also had to win, right? And so when we did all that, when the time came, we got our PMNs, boom, like that, because we did everything right with respect, the way we were supposed to do it, finding out way in advance the kind of work we had to do, what were the things to look out for. Most of you don't do things like that. They look for a reason not to do something. They look for a reason to shut something down. They're not always looking for a reason for it to be successful. They're not always looking for a reason to involve more people, not less, who know the things they don't know, right? They're not necessarily looking out to, to have other people competing with them, right? And look, 100% of nothing is nothing. I'd much rather have a robust team of folks than to try to do something myself, right? And then you got to make people winners. And that means through the whole value chain, not just to your customer. And then in the end, you got to bring your customer a customer. So those are some of the things that we've done in all these different industries. 
that that has had a tremendous impact. Oh, interesting. I I love how you mentioned execution because sometimes that's not talked about a lot, and especially tangible uh, products. I mean, it's it's a whole different animal. I mean, software is, has less resistance, but building materials have has multi channels and a heck of a lot of resistance to change build no, builds into it. You're, you're absolutely right. And what I find funny, be honest with you, I mean, my, my primary business partner, Steve then comes from that software world, that hardware world, right? Is we look at all this and we actually find it amusing is that people think they can schedule innovation. See, innovation consultancy saying it can be predictable. They're full of crap. Excuse my language for the podcast. <laughs> they're full of them. And half of these guys, if not 80% of them, they're from the software world. It's just a bunch of BS. I mean, if you put these guys and told them to make lemonade, they wouldn't know how. If they told them to make a cake, they don't know how. Now tell them to start making up a new roofing shingle, right? Yeah. Tell them to go frame this room. Tell them to go put down this floor. Tell them to build these cabinets. You don't schedule innovation. That's not how things work out there. But what you can do, especially in tangible product, is have these principles of behavior. And so in adaptive innovation, the way we go about doing transformative breakthroughs, we talk about what those key principles are. We talk about the right kind of ecosystem to have in your company for innovation. And it doesn't cost a ton of money. In fact, costs should go significantly down, not up. Right? I'm not advocating layoffs. So when you have an innovation team of 200, you've made a mistake. Somewhere you've made a really big mistake. Because <laughs> your regular folk should be able to handle the innovation. What you need are some people that are essentially ambassadors into the ecosystem. They're abstracting business ideas together with corporate leadership and the individual business units to build business cases for these abstracted things. And then when the components start to reveal themselves, everyone in the company can be looking out for those things. Everyone. Yeah. From the janitor to the plant guy to the R&D guy to the sales guy, right, to the M&A guy, biz dev, whatever you want to do. If you can make those messages clear, those principles clear, everyone can contribute to innovation in a very powerful way. But everyone kind of segregates it, or they do the opposite, like I said earlier. Everyone gets an innovation title. I mean, that's about as unbelievable. I mean, if I had a company and I start doing that, shoot me, fire me, get rid of me. <laughs> awesome. I love that. I saw in your profile, you're, you're deeply involved in community stuff. You want to explain some of that? Oh, I don't know. I just like doing stuff. I like being creative, so I do a lot of gardening stuff. And, and even there, I'm a, I guess I'm an innovator. So, so I created a company, named it after my kids, and opened up lots of commercial accounts to get deep discounts. And ordered tens of thousands of plants, and that's why my wife says I'm an idiot. So there's one thing. I um, love chemistry, went to culinary school, loved to bake. So every year we bake a few thousand cookies wow. around Thanksgiving. And then, and then because I, I really can't eat them, my family doesn't want to eat that many cookies. And usually the next morning or that evening, uh, we'll bring them over to the police station and fire department. Yeah. And, and what I'm always struck by is, is you, you talk and bring it in like 3,000 cookies, right? Yeah. 12 pies, 10 cakes. While I'm just making small talk after we've delivered them, they'll come out with all the trays, all the stuff, and go, oh, we've eaten them. And you're like, what the? So, so how do you eat that many cookies? <laughs> Apparently, they all come running in from, from their, you know, whatever they're doing outside the station. So for maybe five, 10 minutes, there's no one guarding the city of Loveland. <laughs> well, you got to keep that secret. Uh, you know, it's, it's a vulnerability in the city. Yeah, and I love baseball. I, I, I help coach and then manage an organization in select youth baseball. My son used to be a very, very good baseball player, really. Like, he could hit a home run at a red stadium, all that stuff. And so I love getting heavily involved in that. 
And it was another chance, right, to learn about another ecosystem. We actually came across opportunities to develop technologies for umpires, masks, for bats, all kinds of cool stuff, right? But at the same time, hey, I got to spend time with my son, right? Yeah. And, and, and he actually became really good. So that was really kind of fun to watch all that happen and learn more about baseball than I ever thought. And, and that was cool. But, but it's stuff that I could have a tangible impact on, right? I mean, I guess I could do other things, right, to make a difference. Right now, I'm spending time lecturing to high school, through NEPRIS high school classes across the country, sometimes locally, on innovation, on what it's like to be an engineer. Shocking how little education there is to even show kids what the career opportunities are in the sciences, mm -hmm. how they can make money doing it, how they should train for it. I mean, the kids come out, they have no idea what an engineer is, unless their parent happened to be one, or they have a family friend or someone, right? And so I like to spend a lot of time doing that to make a difference, if that makes sense. Yeah, And I like to meet their students here in Cincinnati, obviously one of the local schools primarily I work with is UC. And, you know, basically any kid that comes out of their MBA or, or undergrad, I'm happy to help them if I have the time to help them with their career, figure out what the things are they want to do, what they're good at, questions to ask, how to interview. It's just something to give back, right? Absolutely. Now, if you had to give advice to your younger self, what would it be? Oh, I should have gotten my MBA right away and kept going. Yeah. Unfortunately, two babies... And me going to school at night at, at one point, that just didn't make sense for my poor wife. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I got 75% of the way done and never finished. But what I realized if, if I even worked four or five years with back on wood with the success that I had, I probably could have gone to a top business school. Yeah. And, and that, that, that probably would have been a little more transformative to my income. Not necessarily to what I did, but, but it certainly would have been more transformative to my income. Because, hey, if you hired a Harvard MBA, what could go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing, right? <laughs> well, I'm not going to say that, but you kind of get my drift, right? I, um, I think I think if I had another thing, it's just just how I spent my money and where I saved it and what I did. There are things that, that uh, how many millions of Americans would say they wish they just made some better decisions there, right? Yeah. So those are probably two pieces of my face to my my younger self. Probably the third piece to my younger self would be not to have eaten so many cookies. <laughs> my, uh, I used to be a weightlifter, so I went from an I to a V. And then, and then when I stopped being a weightlifter, the V went to an A, and now I'm an H. <laughs> oh, I, that's, why the, that's why the food industry career didn't last as long as maybe it could have. <laughs> ice cream was not the place. And you know, you had to eat a lot because I was working on coatings for nuts that went into ice cream. Yeah. And we tried to develop products you know, to keep the nuts crispy for months and months versus for like half an hour. And, uh, you know, you had to eat the ice cream. I mean, what the hell? <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> Is there anything I should ask you but didn't? I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm not a perfect person by any stretch. You know, my, my goal in life is to try to leave an impact on the earth. I can make some money doing it. That's great. But, you know, we, I really, if everything like I mentioned earlier that my wife's been through, I and, and a lot of my colleagues, the, the thing we're more interested in, a lot of us have had our own tragedies in our lives, is really helping other people, mm -hmm. right? Making a difference, making an impact on other people, their careers, and then, of course, by default, then their companies. We're not here to just try to just go get a bill and, and extend it out and do any of those kind of things. That, that's where you'd be deeply dissatisfying. Yeah. You know? And I think if more people spent their lives trying to just help people, you know, you're telling me a question to ask, it's just make a difference. Try to make a difference in other people's lives. You may not get the thanks, you may not get the recognition, but, but somewhere deep inside, you'll feel better about what it is that you're doing. And then you know what? You'll feel better about the work you're doing. Perfect. Words to live by. 
Well, Adam, thank you so much. Oh, that sounds terrific. Thank you. So I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify. And I also want to thank the listeners specifically that are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, please forward it along and send me a note or drop me a comment if you have any feedback or suggestions. Talk to you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.